This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it's me, Cindy Adams, same Cindy Adams, Madam Adams, who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week in the New York Post. You're stuck with me. Right now, I'm sort of feeling kind of down, and I, I just don't want to be too funny at the moment. Listen, it's not Russia versus Ukraine. It's actually killing Putin versus quaking Biden. This came from some military officer. It was sent to me. 150,000 Russian troops to conquer a country of armed and patriotically motivated citizens. And for no purpose, we were trained, say, says the military officer, we were trained that attempting to control a conquered nation is like swallowing a porcupine, particularly when the rest of the country loves the porcupine. That's the end of his quote. A small church-going group in Moscow has contacted an equivalent church-going group here. Happens I know about it firsthand. As foreboding events unfolded, they've requested prayerful thoughts from up here. They have asked us to pray for peace to prevail and to address aggression and war. Their yearning in hearts is to feel the presence and power of God's goodness and love right where disaster looms. My longtime Ukrainian friend tells me of her family in the old country. She says, I talk to them every day. They live on the east side of Ukraine. So far, she says, their telephone service has not been cut off. For the moment, email still operates. What they say is, the entire world, in their view, has abandoned them. People commiserate. Journalists talk. But nobody really cares about them. They don't see the entire world responding while they are dying. They ask, why doesn't NATO send a jet and blow up these soldiers who are killing us. Why didn't the United States stop this three weeks ago? Washington knew this was coming. Me, Cindy, even I knew about it. I was told. I didn't think. I was told. If our White House really cared, you think that that nothing man in there should have picked right now? the very day tanks and soldiers marched in to shoot us. That very day, he decided to present a new Supreme Court justice just to appease people who don't favor him? How about his timing? Has he no respect? Okay, she says, my Ukrainian friend, my parents now, there's blood everywhere. Innocent infants are being bombed in Eastern Europe. Fragile seniors are dying in nursing homes in America. My parents, she says, worked in a Nazi war camp. They say 
Now it's Germany all over again. My parents and their friends are hunkering down. They're fighting, dying, bleeding. We are taught that God is in heaven. Heaven is harmony. Religion teaches that God loves us. So how displeased is he now? There's war, hate, death, disease, homeless, killing, bombing, shooting. Our people are fleeing, bleeding. They're dying. Innocent people are lost. They're homeless. A frail mother reports immigrants crowding the Hungarian border. My friend's family fears they are being encircled. There's Ukrainian pushback, as we've read, but with that man's need to save face, will this mad monster not get tougher? We are rocketing to outer space. Really? How about Earth? We are talking disaster. Is he angry with us up there? Is our world Sodom, Gomorrah, Armageddon? It's Ukraine versus Russia. It's Biden quaking versus Putin killing. God bless the United States of America. It got Hitler. It got Bin Laden. Okay. Okay, it's Cindy again, and I know I'm running over, running off at the mouth. But my city here is also having its troubles. Listen, my religion is New York. I was born here. I live here. I work here. Even my baby dog is a Yorkie. I am a devout New Yorker. Now I want to say a few words about my city. Now that I've talked about the international crisis, I want to talk about my neighborhood. Only New York City natives will understand this. New York. There is no north and south. It's uptown or downtown. New Yorkers don't know from north and south. It's east or west and cross town. And it is not Manhattan. It's the city. A 500-square-foot apartment is considered large here. You pay only $500 a month only to park your car. A stranger's from Rhode Island, and you say, You live where? No peace, because next door, they're arguing. A dog's barking. A kid's crying. TV is screeching. New York, it's 6th Avenue, not Avenue of the Americas. It's the Triborough, not the Robert F. Kennedy. You're looking for Queen's Battery Tunnel? Forget it. Now it's the Hugh Carey. You want B. Altman? Me too. It's closed. And if you're not the least interested going to Times Square on New Year's Eve, you're a New Yorker. And the presidential visit is just a major traffic jam? 
not an honor? You resent September because the U.N. ties up streets. You cringe hearing Houston Street pronounced like the lousy Texas city. You wear black, navy, gray, beige. Orange and yellow sherbet colors are for out-of-towners. You know what's a regular coffee. You know Sunday breakfast is a bagel and a schmear. You know what's a bodega. You wouldn't bother ordering Chinese in any other city. You order takeout, and the major food groups are Chinese, Italian, Mexican, Indian. The deli gives you a straw with every beverage, even beer. Lunch, it can be outdoors, sitting on a step, a curb, or walking. You can eat a pretzel off a push cart. There's no space to walk here because everyone's schlepping a big bag. The guys your big bag is bumping into are also carrying a big bag. You shop from sellers on the sidewalk who spread their products out on a blanket. Traffic is so bad you can't get cross town unless you're born there. Middle age, you never had a driver's license. Even asleep, you know when alternate side of the street parking starts. Ride a subway car without air conditioning just because there's seats available. Know exactly where on the platform the doors open to leave you right directly in front of the exit stairway. Know exactly on the subway how you never miss your stop even if you're snoozing. Know that nobody actually understands any PA announcement on the stupid subway. And if you spend ten years away and you open your mouth, everyone still knows you're from New York. Return after ten years away, and the first foods you want are pizza, bagel, cheesecake, and New York steak. Bumped into, you immediately check for your wallet. You never even notice anyone all alone having a normal conversation with their own self all alone. You don't know your neighbors, and you're cranky, and yet you want to live here because it's only in New York, kids, the home of Scorsese, Dustin, Woody, Gaga, Julianne, Gyllenhaal, Gale, De Niro, Jackman, Madonna, Sarah Jessica, Taylor Swift, Matt Damon. Only in New York, kids. Only in New York. And I'll be back right after a station break. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I am about to bring on Bill O'Reilly, whom the entire world knows. He's my guest and he's my friend. And he's probably civilization's best-selling author alive. What with his killing bestseller books, killing Lincoln, killing Patton, killing Marilyn, killing Jesus. We now have a quickie station 
to hear him, Bill O'Reilly's new one, Killing the Killers. Can you tell me why this is such a tough book, Bill? Well, the subtitle, I think, tells it all. It's Killing the Killers, A Secret War Against Terrorists. And um, after 9-11, the United States government basically declared war on terrorism. Everybody will remember that. But then uh, they went silent. And uh, the campaign, the military campaign, to wipe out Islamic terrorism is top secret. It's classified. So nobody really knows what's happening. You hear when a major terrorist gets killed, but you don't know how it happened and all of that. And that is what Killing the Killers is all about. We've got a bunch of classified information. We put it in the book. I'll probably go to prison for it. But I think the American people need to know how this war is being waged in their name. Okay. But the stuff we've all read before, all of your fabulous killing books, was all past tense. This is happening right now and could be happening again next week. That is going to make us all very, very nervous. Are you not aware of that? Well, I don't care. I mean, it's not my job as a historian slash journalist uh, if people are nervous. My job is to tell the truth. And this book, Killing the Killers, is the best reporting I've ever done in my entire 46-year career. So we were able to get classified information, as I just said, and weave a narrative about how the United States, with the help of Britain and France and other countries, tracks down and assassinates these Islamic terrorists. It's harrowing, I I admit it. Um, When you read it, you're going to go, am I reading fiction? You're not reading fiction. This is true. And it's going on, as, as you just said, Cindy, even as we speak, because these Islamic terrorists would love to attack us again. They'd love nothing more than to do that. This is stuff about beheadings. How do you get such details? I know you're not going to tell me exactly, but tell me approximately. How do you get that? Well, what happens is when civilians are murdered, like Daniel Pearl in Pakistan, and we write extensively about Kayla Muller, a young uh, American relief worker who was based in Turkey, got kidnapped and killed in Syria. When that happens, the United States government tracks down the murderers and captures them. Um, And then the murderers, in turn, tell the American authorities what happened and how it happened. That all goes into classified information. Well, we were able to get through that classification and find out what the American internal services uh, got from their interrogations of the jihadists. And so it's not an eyewitness report, but it's a report from the battlefield. Okay, the people who, who witnessed it uh, told under duress American authorities what happened. The centerpiece is Kayla Muller. She is the young girl who you just spoke about. Tell us that story. It's chilling, it's killing, and it's frightening. Yes. Okay, so Kayla was uh, a young girl who wanted to do good, and she uh, graduated college in Arizona, where her parents live, in the Phoenix area. 
and she uh, went to Turkey to work with Kurdish refugees and other people who have fled to Turkey because of Middle East violence. So while there, she had the opportunity to go into Syria, where ISIS is, all right, to this day, ISIS is in Syria, because there's really no effective Syrian government in the northern part of that country. So ISIS roams around. So Kayla foolishly took that opportunity, drove across the Turkish border, went down to a town in Syria um, with her boyfriend, who was also a relief worker. And uh, they were uh, ostensibly helping out Doctors Without Borders, another charity group. Well, as soon as ISIS sees an American, her boyfriend was not an American, he was a Muslim, um, they will kidnap you. Right now, if you go to Syria and you walk around in northern Syria, you'll be kidnapped. Because ISIS needs money, and they hold Americans for ransom. And that's what happened to Kayla. It's so, difficult to have this conversation with her parents. I know that you spoke to them actually. How, how did you accomplish that? Well, I, you know, we knew from local news reports um, about Kayla's parents and where they are, and I contacted them, and they know me from television and they trust me so i was lucky there um and i said look i want to tell your daughter's story but i need you to give me letters and emails and everything from her that she had sent you and isis was in direct contact with the mullers because that's how the ransom demands were made yeah so isis contacted the mullers through email and said, you need to pay millions of dollars or your daughter's going to get murdered. Seven million. Yeah. And so we got all that. All right. So the Mueller family was kind enough to give us that. And because they knew that I was trying to stop this, number one. And number two, I wanted their daughter to be known. You know, people forget about this kind of stuff. And al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, he had direct control over Kayla Mueller. And so we tell that story. And it is harrowing, there's no doubt about it. It's awful. But it needs to be told. In in this new book, Killing the Killers, what did her parents say if you allowed them to read this book before it came out? It's not coming out until May. But did they read it in advance? Yes, they've read read the book. um, And I have an email from Mrs. Muller saying that she's uh, very happy with it, and um, that's the highest compliment I could get. You didn't speak to her personally, did you? I email. You know, yeah. I don't want to be a true... I did. Oh, yes, I did for the research of the book, of course. I had to convince both parents to cooperate with us. Um, and, uh, you know, now we sent her the book as we sent the book to you, and they read it, and they are uh, very, very happy with the way we've reported the situation, and that means everything to me. Tell me about the emails and the correspondence that they allowed you to see. It's sadistic. I mean, these ISIS killers, I mean, it's sadistic. They're telling them, uh, you know, what they're going to do to Kayla, and if you don't do this, this is going to happen, and... I mean, it's really sick. This, is a, this crew is beyond redemption. And they, in my opinion, they're getting what they deserve. 
which is a gory death. I mean, we're tracking these guys down, and there's it's not like come out with your hands up. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know. Are you going to go further and doing something like killing America? Are you going to do something like that next? No, my next book um, will be on... I know. You know what it is. I yeah. Don't tell anybody yet because we don't want the. Every time I tell too early, then someone tries to steal the idea. No, I won't talk about it. But we it's will about do contemporary culture, but it's not a political book. Tell me, I although I know it, but not the audience does. If you've done so many of the killing books, how do you decide on a subject? It's all me. I mean, you know, I run my own shop on television, radio, and in books. So I like to write about things that I want to learn about. So if I don't know a subject very well, like I wanted to know everything about Abraham Lincoln. That was the first killing book, and that is the best-selling of all 11, uh, Killing Lincoln. And I wanted to know the historical Jesus, not the, not the Bible Jesus, but what really happened there. And so that's how I pick my um, my subjects. And in my town on Long Island, Manhasset, where I live, uh, scores of people were killed on 9-11. And I know those people. I've watched the children grow up without parents. And so it was very personal to me to find out what the U.S. government is trying to do to right this grievous wrong. And that's why I wrote Killing the Killers. I have a feeling that this might have been the most painful of all the reporting jobs because this is currently in progress now. This is not writing about something that happened hundreds of years ago. This is now. Yeah, it's more personal, but it wasn't painful because I'm glad this is happening. Not, of course, the ISIS murders and the al-Qaeda murders. That's heinous and horrible. But I'm glad that our country is taking action against these people because all they want to do is kill infidels. That's all they live for. So they shouldn't live because they're going to do it again and again and again and again. And our government is taking very strong action against them. So when people read Killing the Killers, I think there's going to be a bit of satisfaction in the book. Okay. How, look, I write for a living. But how do you write this? Is it on computer? Do you talk it to someone? How do you do it when you're doing such tough subjects? Okay. So I have a co-author, Martin Dugard, who is the primary researcher on the books. Yeah. And what he does is I give him an outline of the book. All right? So this is how we're going to start. This is gonna, how we're going to end. This is what we want to find out. That's the first thing that happens. It's called an outline. All right. And then Marty and I, he lives in Orange County, California. So we get on the phone talking. We don't email very much. Speaking is better when you're a writer because ideas pop into your head while you're in a conversation. Um, So we go chapter by chapter. This is how we're going to open. So we open Killing the Killers with bin Laden. What really happened and how it happened. And then he does the research. He puts it in narrative form, which means he writes sentences about the research. And then I craft it into a story, a narrative, a storyline. And that's how we do it. Okay. Maybe it would appear to me this has been, of all your books, a most painful 
reporting job. Am I not right? Yeah, I mean, it's painful in the sense that it's it's so bad. Now, yeah. I've covered four wars, so I've seen death. And I mean, I mean, I know what it is. But, you know, to have young people captured and then their heads cut off and Kayla was raped. And I mean, it doesn't get worse than that. Okay. It just doesn't get worse than that. Okay. What's almost as bad as that is that I have to stop the conversation because John Katzmatidis, who owns the station, will knock me off if we don't have a station break. But you are going to come back after the station break because you have something else that you are willing to discuss with me. Is that right? That's right. I'm here. Okay, sweetheart. Let me just do a station break, and then I'm back to you in two minutes. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am back with Bill O'Reilly, who's about as famous as you can get. Every 20 minutes, he writes a bestseller. He's the most read author in the United States of America and the rest of the world. And he's now scratching another subject which he is willing to let me talk about right now. We are talking a little bit about the awards, and you should excuse the expression because to me it's a dirty word, the Oscars and the awards. What are you doing about the awards? Well, I should write a book called Killing the Oscar, but I'm not going to do that. But I'm interested in, in pop culture, which is your specialty. You've known, you know, every entertainer since Al Jolson, I believe. I mean, oh, you know very them, funny, you've yeah. written about them and all of that. Well, we in the United States now, in the year 2022, are witnessing a collapse of Hollywood. Yeah. And, and Hollywood is not only an entertainment vehicle for Americans, it defines American culture all over the world. So people in Africa and South America, South Pacific, they know America through movies. It's always been that way. And now Hollywood has killed itself. So we have the upcoming uh, Academy Awards in April. It'll be the lowest watch. Nobody's going to watch it. I think Amy Schumer is the host and two other women, accomplished women. But it doesn't matter. Nobody wants the job. Nobody wants to host the Oscars. I mean, it used to be Bob Hope and Johnny Carson and, you know, big, big celebrities. And that, that was the plum job. Now, I mean, you, you can't even give it to Eminem. Nobody wants it. So you got to ask yourself, why? What has happened in Hollywood? Now, as you know, I'm the executive producer of four movies, all right? Killing Lincoln, Killing Jesus, Killing Kennedy, and Killing Reagan. So I know the Hollywood world. I know how it works. It's nasty. It's always been nasty. Um, very competitive, very tough. But the product used to be really, really good. I look forward to going to movies. I haven't been to the movies, Cindy. In a theater, since the James Bond thing came out, and I hated it. Yeah, I know. And I'm a big James Bond fan. They Have you ever neuter James Bond? He's woke. I don't want a woke James Bond. Okay, and that epitomizes what has happened in Hollywood. It's now controlled by virtue signalers, cancel culture people who are basically putting on a line of garbage. Do you remember what the best picture of the year last year was? Do you no. remember? No, I can't remember anything. Okay. 
nomad land. Listen, it was lousy. How dare they do this? It was the awful, most terrible movie. It was garbage. Let me ask you something besides garbage. Have you ever attended an Oscar party? Yes, I attended the Vanity Fair party 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah, well, they all were walking around with getting drunk and showing their Oscars, and Meryl Streep left hers once in the ladies' room after she peed. She peed and walked (laughs) out and left the Oscar damp wherever it was. I mean, that's how much she cared about it. Yeah, when I was at the party, they were all on their best behavior when I was around because they know it's me. And I don't like those Hollywood phonies anyway. I only went to the party because a friend of mine invited me, and then I could get about five or six stories out of the party. Um, But three of the four movies that we produced were nominated for Emmys. So I did go to that Emmy show and uh, a couple of parties afterwards. So I know this world. I know it. Um, And a lot of people really love it and they're fascinated by it. That's how you make a living. You tell people about the rich and famous. To me, it's just work. It's an industry. But an industry in tremendous decline. Methuselah lived 900 years. That was like three weeks before me. But he lived 900 years. He could have lasted another weekend, and still his life would have been shorter than the Oscars. They have gone longer and longer every year. What are they going to do, in your view, this year? Nobody will see it, but they've cut down a lot of the awards, like a best screenwriter for a foreign film made in Albania. They're not going to have that. They're going to give those awards ahead of time and try to get to the awards that people care about, but nobody cares about any of these movies, so it's going to be a disaster. And, you know, that's what's going to happen, no doubt. There was a man a long time ago called Jules Stein who wrote a movie called Three Coins in the Fountain. Trevi Fountain. He said at the time, it wasn't terrific. And yet, he said, I won the Oscar. Awards, he actually said, are dishonest. Do you believe that? Well, I think there's a lot of politics in all these awards. So we're living in a woke, inclusive age now. You'll see that in the Oscars. Um, What did ABC uh, TV come out and say, hey, we got a bunch of good scripts by white guys, but we're not going to run them because we don't want... People to submit scripts that they're Caucasian. I mean, that's what they got. At least ABC admitted it. Uh, But that's what you're looking at. And and so at this point, it's like the Olympics, you know? It was a huge bomb. Nobody watched. That's what's going to happen to the Academy Awards this year. Well, the hearings have now fallen lower than Jennifer Lopez's bra. Nobody actually watches this stuff anymore at all. Well, I once wrote a piece that said that the Oscars have have just had 28% of the votes. And Ben Affleck said, you can win with just a very small, tiny percent of the votes. What is it? Are they drunk? Are they people that don't care? Is it now they only want Hungarians with one leg to get awards? Is that it? They have blacks, they have whites, they have people who can't walk. They're going to divide it? Is that what's going to happen? Well, look, it's um, whatever is trendy in Hollywood, that's what you see in the award programs. And, you know, it's not like discipline or what the best skill set is in the film and who's the best actor. 
It's not like that anymore. Um, it's like, okay, I want to go to this restaurant, and I want people to think that I'm very liberal and very woke, so that's what I'm going to do. And it's, uh, it's groupthink out there. I mean, if you're a conservative individual in Hollywood, you better not say anything or you're not going to work. I, I mean, a lot of my friends, they go, look, I can't say anything. If you're a Trump supporter and they find out about it, they being the agents and the people who produce films and TV shows, you won't get hired. Okay, I mean, so what's going wow. to be – what is going to be the future? Is it because of Netflix and streaming? Is that what it is? Or is it that we have gotten tired of what they're producing? What is the reason why nobody cares about this any longer? Because the product isn't any good. So they don't make movies. It's a cliche. They don't make them like they used to. But it's true. If you watch Turner Classic Movies, and I do, um, the films back then, I just watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner uh, with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. I mean, and Sidney Poitier. It was an amazing film. They were, and then I'm trying to think, is there anybody these days who can act like that, put together a film like that? No, 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 nor do they care. Everything has to be very careful. But who cares about even the people now? There are too many non-attended movies. And who goes out to a movie theater? You just sit home and you eat popcorn and you watch some dreck that is on television. What is happening to our entertainment industry? Is that what you're going to be writing about? Well, uh, look, if there's a good movie out and you can't get it on streaming, you'll go to the theater. I mean, there are movies that, that attract people in, but there's so few good ones. Look at the ones this year that are nominated for Best Picture. I, I mean, awful. you know, awful. some of them are awful. Some yeah, outside of Belfast, the Branagh movie, which is good. I mean, the rest of them is the, the dog thing in the old west. I'm going, what, what is it? What is this now? <laughs> you know, come yeah, on. I know. I know. Uh, Do you remember when Warren Beatty gave it to the wrong people and the wrong film idiot that he is? He handed the Oscar to the wrong people. Did you ever watch that one? Yes, I remember Warren doing that, yeah. Yes, and then there was once John Travolta said, now he's giving it to Adele Dazim. That was supposed to be Idina Menzel. Are they drunk? (laughs) Are they on? The Golden Globes is also gone. Why is that gone? Because that was corrupt. I mean, uh, there was a lot of (laughs) behind-the-scenes stuff going on there. I understand. Yes, Um, okay. But look. In any enterprise, whether it's Cindy Adams' column or Bill O'Reilly doing the news on BillOReilly.com or writing a killing book, if the product is not good, people aren't going to consume it. It's not difficult. It's amazing that these movies even get made because they're so tedious. And they never end. They run like four hours now, right? I mean, uh, come on. And every so, every scene, they're killing, their blood. There, there's a knife, there's a gun, there's a bomb, there's dynamite. Yeah, there's that's no with nice the Chinese sweet... and Pakistani audiences because that's where they make the money overseas. And if you don't blow somebody up every thirty-five seconds overseas, they won't go. They want to see, you know, it's like thirty-five seconds. All right, blow somebody else up. That's what the audience wants. So that's what they get. 
Okay, well, I have a feeling that maybe if they put the bathrooms closer to the stage, we might have a shot at sitting through these awful Oscars. And are you going to write about exactly what in the next book that I'm not supposed to know on the air, but I'm asking? It's a fascinating culture look at uh, some individuals that everybody knows. Yeah. And I mean everybody knows. And what their lives were really like. And um, it's a killing book because all of them died in a way that you would not want to die. And um, very fascinating. You're going to love it. Okay. And I love you, and I think it's your turn to take me to dinner. All right. Anywhere you want. That's the kind of guy I am. (laughs) Thank you, Willie. I love you dearly. And I love your book, Killing the Killers. Thank you, thank you, thank you, baby. You're welcome, Cindy. Thanks for having me. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, I'm back. We have now had a station break. Not because you're probably tired of listening to me, but because the station owner, John Katsimatidis, needs to make a few bucks. So now that he's made a few We are continuing, and the world will circle on. I'm going to tell you a few little stories just to get away from the heaviness of what we've been talking about so far. I am not exactly sure whether the word diva means you're a bright light or a played-out bulb, but there's a guy called Eric Mazza, M-A-Z-A. He's Town & Country Magazine's executive style director, really classy title. And what he has done in the current issue is to dissect divas in the March issue. And he shows a picture of me sitting on my phone, on my bed, as though I am whatever is a diva. The shot was taken light years ago, before I learned how you could smear Vaseline on the lens. This is a shtick that aging stars have done. In neat little dabs, they know how to soften the sharpness of their photos. They soften the lines with just a tiny little tad of Vaseline. But this was done before they had Vaseline, and it's a shot of me on the phone. Also, three beneath me, there is a photo of Her Majesty, the Queen of England. I am above the Queen, pay attention. The Queen of England is wearing a diamond crown, white mink fur, and a diamond wristwatch. The diamond wristwatch is over long gloves, as though she has to check the time. I mean, like, for what? To be sure she's not late? Like, for what? For her appointment to pay Prince Andrew's lawyer? Or Prince Harry's psychiatrist? What does she need a wristwatch over long gloves? Anyway, this brilliant addition of mine right now just came to me. And it has nothing whatever to do with my just-told town and country story, nor my photo in its current issue. But as I speak of Her Majesty, I remember a little story. I would like to know and ask the world, what does Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, can anyone tell me, what she schleps in that handbag? 
she always has that black, lousy-looking, identical, big, black, roomy, unchic handbag always hanging off her wrist by its leather handle and matching nothing, and she's never without it. If she's wearing pink, she's schlepping that black bag. If she's all in yellow, she's still schlepping it. What is in it? Cab fare? Credit card? I'll tell you what I know, and I do know because I have been there with Her Majesty. I mean, not exactly with her, but I have been at events with her. This is her signal. It's the handbag. It's the signal for the aide-de-camp who's always accompanying her to remove Her Majesty, the land's longest remaining reigning sovereign, Queen Elizabeth, to remove her from some non-royal, long-winded pest. I know, because when she changes her hand, when the handle of the bag goes to the other hand, it's time for her to be moved on. Anyway, that's all I have. If you have Town and Country magazine with my picture, great. If you don't have it, forget I mentioned it. I'll go on to something else. Here's a few more squibbles. You may have already heard or read or it's been printed or it's even smelled that the ex-governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, and the ex-governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, had a meal together at Fresco by Scotto, an Italian restaurant on East 52nd. It was mentioned in the papers. It's probably written on toilet paper. It's been everywhere. Not mentioned, however, is the background. Not mentioned is that Cuomo has busied himself organizing meals for himself and then also seeing who maybe might traipse along with him. Recently, he snagged New York's Mayor Adams to dinner. This, of course, is not difficult. Adams has plenty of free time because he does nothing. Most of what he does is to dress up in pressed suits and be photographed at events or speak on television. What else has he done? He almost has no time left to locate City Hall or to praise his horrible, terrible new district attorney, Alvin Bragg, whose thought of how to keep from being stabbed is simply not to walk into the blade. Anyway... The deal with Andrew Cuomo is he wants to be seen around, shriveling alone somewhere unseen and ungeared, and to look shrunken is not helping his comeback. Being in public is the centerpiece of his new ad campaign. It's geared to redeem his image. So... He now only frequents his most friendly restaurants. He's always gone to Fresco. He often dined in their most private upstairs dining room where you can stuff 35-ish unseen bodies. So that's what is happening if you see him anywhere. Andrew Cuomo is smart. And what he does is, at the hand-picked eatery of his choice, he's known to be there 
to greet him. He has friends. They are pre-placed there, like extras in a movie. And he is planning more of these sightings. So, who will be his next special meal with some special guest next? Only the shadow knows. Wait, I have more genius bits to share with you. For one, you should know I have just celebrated my wedding anniversary. He's not with me anymore, but understand, uh, I was married back when Lincoln was clean-shaven, and a husband, not Lincoln, was a, a sort of nice thing to have. But it has just come to my slim brain that besides our other troubles on this planet, we have become a replaceable society. Instead of driving, it's Uber. Instead of cooking, it's takeout. Instead of stockings, it's leg makeup. Instead of a bus to the seashore, grab a rocket to Mars. If you can get more time, you finally schlep there. They'll be playing some Meryl Streep movie by the time you get there. Instead of a book we got today, it's a Kindle. Instead of an office, it's at home. Instead of a home, it's a share. Instead of writing, it's a computer. Instead of hair, it's a wig. Instead of movies, it's streaming. Instead of a camera, it's a phone. Instead of a leader, it's Biden. Instead of a mink, it's fake fur. So... Instead of bitching and quetching about feeding our in-laws, maybe we create something called rent-a-husband. So far, I have no creative plan on exactly how to accomplish all this. I'm just sort of mentioning it at the moment. And because I am what's called a full-service reporter, two little snippets of information from Florida. Home of the aged and the alligators. Sunny Florida is up to its artistry in jewelry, paintings, antiques, anything artistic. One night, a whole restaurant in Palm Beach closed to become an art show. Instead of antiques, it's anything artistic. Instead of dinner, so you have nothing to do but to visit galleries, because down there, everyone's finished with their late-night 5 p.m. dinner by 5.15, so there's nothing else to do but to visit art shows. So, now, also, more about Florida. Be aware. The Mar-a-Lago attitude seems to be up. Donald's personally picking songs in the dining room. He's actually schlepping around with his own iPad. He's clicking into Spotify or whatever. The other evening, he played Elvis during a soup course. And now I'm going to give you another station break. And when you come back, I'm going to kiss you goodbye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Well, while you're schlepping around looking for a rent-a-husband, I have to tell you that things 
are now tough in our post-pandemic job market. One person complained to me he had just been laid off. So I asked, where'd you work? And he said, the unemployment office. Okay, only in New York, kids, only in New York. I will be better next week, and I will talk to you next week, same time, same station. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 